Well, stand with me as we look at some verses in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 14. The Bible says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, for a long time, I thought that meant if I don't have peace and holiness in my life, I won't see God. But I have studied it long enough to believe that it means if I don't demonstrate peace and holiness in my life, no one will see God in me. You see, God's a holy God. You can't represent a holy God to a pagan world by acting like them. There's a Bible college. I, I used to like the Bible college. It, I used to support it. I used to preach there. Uh, the president of the Bible college was a little bit older than me, and I thought he was a wise man, and he taught me a lot of things, and I, I appreciated him. I'd been there many, many times, and they dropped Baptists from their name a while ago, and somebody sent me a link, and they're advertising one of their groups, and they're on there banging on the drums and beating on the guitars and wiggling around. And the, the one guitarist, uh, you, I could tell you, where to find it if you wanted to. Uh, but but the, the, the last guitarist, a college student whom I know, I know him because he used to be a member of our church when he was a little boy, his dad worked for us. And, and at the end of it, he's, he's wanging away and he's got this, like a snarl on his face. And I showed that to somebody. I said, tell me that's worship. <laughs> tell me that's what you'll look like when you're praising God. So if I don't, have peace and holiness, nobody will see God in me. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Lord, the very best I know, I'm preaching the sermon you directed me to. It is not one I had placed in my Bible. It's not even one I set aside to consider using here when I went through the sermons in the room this afternoon. But the very best I know, it's what you want me to do. And I pray you'd help me. I agree with my brother who prayed at the beginning of the service to ask that you would bind the devil and his demons and keep them from taking this good seed from your word out of the soil of our hearts. And yet, Lord, we have to be receptive. We have to be like those at Berea who received the word with all readiness of mind. Would you help us to do that? Guide me and use this to the help of the dear people who make up this wonderful church. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, for a long time, I've preached about bitterness. It's a very important topic. And I preach from this passage and I say somewhere along the line something like this. You have a root of bitterness in your heart. It's going to destroy you. It's a cancer that will eat you up from the inside out. Get it out. Get rid of it. And people would come to an altar and they'd say, God, I want to get rid of the root of bitterness. And people would sit in my office and they'd pray. And they'd say, God, I want to get rid of the root of bitterness. And it would work for a while. And then something would happen. Somebody would come back into their life that hadn't been there for a long while. They'd remember all the things a person did and all those feelings and all those emotions and all those memories that, boom, just pop back up in their mind. A mother would have a daughter who turned the same age the mother had been when something very awful had happened to her, and she began to relive all that stuff. 
An anniversary would take place and everything come back to them. And they would essentially say this, well, it didn't work. I'm going to make four statements and I'll give you three points. The first three statements I made often, they're in the book, Living in an Imperfect World, and there's a chapter on bitterness there. Statement number one, everybody has been hurt. Everybody's been hurt. Not the same way, not to the same extent, but everybody's been hurt. Statement number two, these hurts can turn to bitterness. They don't have to, but they can. Statement number three, God tells us to respond to these hurts with grace. Grace we say grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. That's true. Grace is unmerited favor. That's true. But it's really not the whole story. Uh, you know, if I, if I came by your house and asked you for a meal and you fed me, I would say thank you, but I don't know if you'd call that grace. But if I came by your house and I took an ice pick and stuck it in all the tires of your cars, took some eggs and threw it at the walls of your, those at the walls of your house and got some wax and put it all over your screens where it'd be real hard to get out. And took the laundry off the back line, I know nobody puts it there anymore, but it's a good illustration, and trampled it in the muddy backyard and then asked you for a meal and you fed me then, that would be grace. See, when God sent Jesus to die on the cross for us, we were his enemies. Grace is more than giving somebody something they don't deserve, unmerited favor. Grace is giving people good when they deserve bad. So I would preach that much. A few years ago, our theme for the year at our church was looking unto Jesus. That phrase is found in the second verse of this chapter. And I was preaching through the chapter and I came to this part of the passage and I thought, you know, this will be a good review for us. And I saw something I had never seen before. Now, let me give you just a little freebie here. If you hear a preacher preach and he tells you the Bible means something and you look at it and say, huh, I'd have never known that if he hadn't said it. It's probably not true. <laughs> but if you hear him preach and he tells you something, you say, wow, I never saw that before, but there it is. And it's probably true. Here's what I saw. There isn't anything in this passage about removing the root of bitterness. Looking diligently, there's any root of bitterness springing up, trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. The assumption is that the root is there. And that every once in a while it springs up. And if we fail of the grace of God when it springs up, then we'll have trouble for ourselves and cause trouble for others. So I now have four statements. Number one, everybody's been hurt. Number two, these hurts can turn to bitterness. Number three, God tells us to respond to these hurts with grace. Number four, dealing with these hurts is not a one-time experience. But an exercise that must be repeated every time those roots of bitterness spring up. Because they're going to spring up. A lot of things in the Christian life are exercises. The Bible tells us to exercise ourselves unto godliness. You know, the thing about exercising is that uh, if you do it any one time, it doesn't much matter. I went down to the 
fitness center and the very lovely motel that you put me in. And I did an hour of exercise and I got my heart rate up over 150. And I looked at the chart for my age. That's uh, they have fat burning and then they have some other thing. Then they have aerobic and they have anaerobic. And I'm in the anaerobic category. Which means if you keep doing that, you're going to die. I think is what it means. <laughs> Now, if you could measure everything about me before that hour of exercise and after that hour of exercise, weight, body fat, strength, cardiovascular, everything about me, there'd be hardly any difference. If that's the only time I was ever going to exercise, I might as well have taken a nap. But I tell you what does benefit me is I do it again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And do an hour three to five times a week. I've been doing that for quite a while. And that will make a difference. See, what we want in the Christian life, we want to take a pill. We want to have an operation. We want to go and pray a prayer and then it'll all be better. But the Bible doesn't say that. And so dealing with these hurts is not a one-time experience, but an exercise that has to be repeated every time those hurts spring up. So having given you that introduction, let me give you the three points. Number one, I want to talk to, I want to, talk to you about roots. Looking diligently, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. Now, that's interesting that it calls it a root of bitterness, not a fruit of bitterness, a root of bitterness. Not a branch of bitterness, but a root of bitterness. A few things about roots. Number one, roots are always covered. First time your preacher called me, I was sitting in a, an airport in Detroit, Detroit airport, and uh, he asked me to come preach. He says, from Austin, Texas. I said, you know, I've read some about that. They say Austin is the prettiest part of Texas. He said, it's the only pretty part of Texas. <laughs> now, you have a lot of trees here. It's greener here than some parts of Texas. You got some hill country. And I've heard people compliment trees because of the branches because of the leaves because of the blossom because even of the bark but I've never heard anybody say wow look at that tree it has tremendous roots they're covered I don't see you tonight I see the expression you choose to put on your countenance and since I'm looking carefully you're all doing better <laughs> I don't know what's going on inside there. It's covered. Some things you never told anybody about. One of the sad things is that terrible things happen to people and they feel responsible for them. And they shouldn't. They're responsible to deal with them and to demonstrate the grace of God in their life, but, but they're afraid to tell anybody because they think if anybody knew what had happened to them, those people would look down on them. And really, that's not true. Is covered. Second thing about these roots, and roots are, these roots are caustic. They're called roots of bitterness. There's some people, there's some experiences, there's some memories, and if they pop in your mind, it's like you've been sucking on a lemon. Yeah. The third thing about these roots, the Bible says they come up. Lest any root of bitterness springing up. See, the assumption in our text is that the roots are there and every once in a while they're going to pop up. So we've got to be ready to deal with them correctly when they do. They come up. I heard about a young man who'd been 
I'm really preparing for a sermon he's going to preach. He's real excited, one of the first sermons he'd ever preached. And he studied a lot and got a lot of ideas. And he's preaching along. And there's a lady about two, three rows back, elderly lady, the ear saint. And he's pretty long. She said, that's Charles Spurgeon. And he just kind of looked at her a little bit and shrugged it off, went on. And a little bit later, she said, that's D.L. Moody. This time he kind of glared at her, figured it, let her know she was out of line, didn't phase her. He preached a little further and she said, that's Billy Sunday. He said, lady, would you please shut up and let me finish my sermon? And she said, that's you. <laughs> now, what we say is this. I'm not really like that. I've just been under a lot of pressure. That wasn't really me, but it, I've been really busy and I'm tired and I, I'm not normally like that. So let me give you a little quiz here. I know we did not tell you ahead of time about it and you didn't have time to practice, but I think you'll do okay. Question number one, if you squeeze an orange really hard, what comes out? Orange juice, very good. Highly intelligent crowd. Question number two, why does orange juice come out of an orange when you squeeze it? Because yeah, that's what's inside. If I squeezed it just right, could I get grapefruit juice out of it? If I squeezed it hard enough, could I get tomato juice out of it? I can't get anything out of it that's not already in it. So what comes out of you when you're under pressure is what you are. It's what's in there. What you are under pressure is what you are. They can't squeeze anything out that's not in there. You'll never say any words when you bang your thumb with a hammer that aren't already in there. <laughs> so we got the roots. And then I want you to see the results of bitterness. This is really intriguing to me. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up trouble you. Trouble you? Why do we hold on to things? Why do we keep them alive in our mind, in our heart? Why do we review them? Why do we every once in a while tell somebody this terrible thing that happened to us and how bad it was? You know, we, we have kind of rehearsed some things in our minds so much that we got a little speech. We're like Elijah. Elijah, what doest thou here? I've been very jealous for the Lord God of Israel and the people of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thine altars and slain thy prophets and they seek my life to take it away and I and I only remain alone. And a little while later, God says, Elijah, what doest thou here? And he gives him the same answer word for word. You know why? Because he's been working on it. He's been thinking about it. He's been feeling sorry for himself. He's been dealing with this in his mind. He's been going over it. The first thing happens when I'm bitter is it troubles me. Well, that's strange. I hang on to it because they did me wrong, but I don't hurt them. I hurt me. So the first result of bitterness is difficulty for you. When I was in college, my dad came to me and said that a preacher friend of his, whose son was also in the college, Christian college I attended, had told him that I had said about this young man that I hated his guts and I wanted to beat his face in. I said, Dad, I never said that. My dad said, well, you better go make it right. I said, why should I make it right? I didn't do anything wrong. I'm listening for the amens. You guys aren't on the job here. <laughs> Hey, whose job is it 
to make a problem right? Is it, is it the person who has caused the offense or the person who has taken offense? I see we have a divided congregation here. <laughs> Matthew chapter 5, the Lord Jesus, in the famous Sermon on the Mount, says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar. It doesn't say quit tithing. It says leave it at the altar. <laughs> and first go be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. So it says, I'm bringing my gift to the altar and there remember that my brother has something against me. In other words, I've done something to upset him. He's upset with me. I have wittingly or unwittingly, fairly or unfairly, justifiably or unjustifiably, I have caused the offense. So the Lord Jesus says, you know somebody's upset with you, go to him and make it right. Don't go say, why are you mad at me? Just so, you know what, I, I can tell there's a problem between you and I, and I know you love the Lord, and you wouldn't be that way if I hadn't done something wrong. Can you tell me what it is? I'd like to try to make it right. But in Matthew chapter 18, the Lord Jesus said, if you have aught against your brother, go to him alone and tell him it's all just between him and you. So wait a minute. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, now you're the one who's taken offense. You've got something against him. Matthew 5, they've got something against you. You go. Matthew 18, you've got something against them. You go. In other words, the Lord Jesus says, don't be sitting around trying to figure out whose fault it is. Just go and get it right. So I went to this young man and I said, my dad said that your dad said that you said that I said that I hated your guts and I wanted to punch your face in and I never said that. And you don't have any burst into tears. He threw his arm around me, he apologized, we became great friends. He went into business, became fabulously wealthy and just last week wrote me a check for $500,000. I think my credibility just suffered a major blow. I'll tell you exactly what happened. He said, Eh, it's okay. That's what he said. Eh, it's okay. Oh, he said it didn't work. Oh, no, it worked perfectly. I did what I was supposed to do. I had a clear conscience. Years went by. I was an assistant pastor for two years and came to Bridgeport where I've been be 38 years next month, Lord willing, if I don't get fired before then. And... We had a singing group in from the ministry that this young man's dad operated, and he came up with a group. And we had a great time. We went out to eat, and we talked about our friends in college and where they were and what they're doing, and we visited. And a couple of weeks later, I got a letter from him, and he said, I needed to write to you and apologize. He said, because for all these years, I have harbored in my heart against you, not bitterness. Here's another freebie. I have very limited success trying to help bitter people say that they are, see that they are bitter. I show them the Bible. I tell them what they're saying. I say, I think you're bitter. They usually say, I'm not bitter. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Don't know how I could have made that mistake. <laughs> not bitterness, but a trace of resentment. I believe that's Hebrew for bitterness. <laughs> now, here's the interesting thing. All those years, it never bothered me a bit that he had a trace of resentment against me. <laughs> Didn't keep me from enjoying preaching or enjoying going soul winning or enjoying a dinner with my wife or enjoying me with my family or my friends. Never bothered me. It bothered him. When you hang on to that, when you don't respond biblically, when you don't do what the Word of God says, it troubles you. 
So the first result is difficulty for you, but the second result is defilement for others, and thereby many be defiled. And he goes on to give an example of one not who was bitter, but who was defiled by the bitterness of others. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person there. Often is a connection between bitterness and moral failure. A lot of young people mess up. You'll find there was a root of bitterness in there. A lot of adults. They go out and, and the attitude is kind of like, well, fine, if that's how they're going to treat me, I can just go do such and such. Esau is an example of one who is defiled by the bitterness of another. You see, God had told Rebekah, his mother, that of the two boys that were born, the elder Esau would serve the younger Jacob. Now, as they grew up, Jacob was Rebekah's favorite and Esau was Isaac's favorite. To be quite honest with you, I'd a whole lot rather spend the weekend with Esau than with Jacob. Esau's an outdoorsman, likes to hunt. Tough guy, goes friend. Now, he's not all that godly, but, but he's a man's man. Jacob's a plain man dwelling in tents. He liked to stay inside and crochet with mommy. He's a whiner. He's a complainer. He's a... 130 years old, he's, he's been reunited with Joseph whom he thinks is dead. He's been given wagons loaded with the best stuff from the land of Egypt. He's been given some of the best land in Egypt for his sheep and his cattle. And Pharaoh says, how old are you? He says, 130 years are the days of the years of my pilgrimage. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Few and evil. Just got reunited with Joseph. You're 130 and you're thinking few and evil. Besides, how do you know it's few? You haven't died yet. I don't like Jacob. God loves him, which I'm glad about because I'm a little bit more like Jacob than I am some great Bible characters like Joseph and Daniel, a lot more like Jacob. But God's plan isn't fulfilled. And Isaac's about to give the birthright to and the blessing to Esau, and he tells him to go kill some venison. And so Rebecca takes things in her hands. You know, she puts the goat's kid on Jacob and makes some venison, or takes some goat and makes it taste like venison, and gives it to him and has it taken to his father, so he gets the blessing. Now, you know what the Bible says? You should read the passage sometime. It says that Esau married ungodly women because he saw that it grieved his parents. Esau has been defiled by the bitterness of his mother. And he's not only a fornicator, he's profane. They tell me the word profane means that he had no place in his life for God. No space that God could occupy. You see, you go ahead and get bitter, but it will never stop with you. You go ahead and be bitter, but don't be surprised if your children are affected by that bitterness. That's what the Bible says. Difficulty for you, defilement for others. I've been in churches where there's like a cloud in the auditorium and you had a hard time piercing it. The preacher has had some hard times and he's become unhappy and he's become bitter and his bitterness has defiled an entire congregation. Your bitterness will defile the people you minister to, to defile your own children, to defile the people that you hang around. I can't afford to be bitter. It'll always bother somebody else. So you got the roots, you got the results. What do you do about it? What's the remedy? Well, essentially, the remedy is grace, which is giving people good, even though they deserve bad. That's what the Bible says, says, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't render somebody evil for evil. Give them a blessing for their evil. 
Let me break it down in three parts. The first two, I think you'll agree with me. The second one may surprise you a little bit, but hang on and I think it'll make sense to you. First part of the remedy and first part of demonstrating grace that you must have if you're going to do what God says about this, you must have faith. Another little quiz you did so well on the last one. Is there a God? Does he love you? Does he say that all things work together for good to those that love him? Does he say everything is good? No. It wasn't good that Joseph got sold to be a slave. It wasn't good that Potiphar's wife lied about him and he ended up in jail, but it worked together for good. So I have to have faith. Roger Powell was our music director for several years, a fine man, wonderful family. His little daughter, Jessica, the second of his children, had always intended to be a missionary. Always said, I'm going to be a missionary. One Wednesday night, they were going to leave after the service, go down to Georgia and be in a wedding. And I saw her before the service. She ran out, gave me a big hug, and she said, hey, Uncle Preacher, I'm going to God's country tonight. And I said, well, that's great. Here, I gave her some money, told her to buy a treat for her sister and her little brother. She's about seven, eight years old then. They'd rented a van to make the trip more comfortable. And they just got down from Saginaw to Ann Arbor. Went over an overpass. Now, some of you understand this. It may not happen often here. But the overpass can be slippery and frozen when the road on either side is just fine. Because the air goes underneath it and freezes that little bit of moisture sooner the Powells are extremely careful people, cautious. They all had their seatbelts on, but something fell on the floor. Jessica got out to get it, and her mother said, Honey, put your seatbelt on. She said, Yes, ma'am, and she's going to put her seatbelt on. And as they went over that overpass, the van slid out of control and smashed into a guardrail. And they were fine. Bruises, really, none of them even needed treatment. Except the window by Jessica's seat popped out on impact. She hadn't quite got her seatbelt on. And she was thrown out that space where the window was, and she smashed to the pavement and died. They went to the hospital, St. Joseph's Hospital, Ann Arbor, Michigan. And a hospital chaplain came up. And he said, probably they taught him this in chaplain school, I imagine. He said, well, there are some things God can't help. But God wants to be there to help you through those things he can't help. I'm glad I don't serve that kind of a God. Amen. Our God sitteth in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he pleased. But man, it is impossible with God. All things are possible. And in the midst of the shock and the grief of that terrible event, Roger Powell looked up at that unsaved man and he said, Mr., this was not an accident. This was an appointment. Say, said, what's good about that? I didn't say it was good. All right, how does God work that together for good? I don't know all the ways. I do know the Powell's wrote a tract about that incident and put Jessica's picture on the front of it. And we still print that tract years later. And people come by from other churches to get that tract and use it. And lots and lots of people have been saved from reading that tract. I do know that because she'd always want to be a missionary, we do a Patch the Pirate play every other year in our school. And we did one about Patch the Pirate Goes to the Jungle, about being a missionary. And we dedicated it to her memory and to the invitation at the end 
end of the play, a young man came up and he said, I want to be a missionary. I think God wants me to do that. And the young lady came up and she said, I believe God wants me to be a missionary. And Rodney Ruppel and Becky Swain went off to college and they finished and they married each other. And they've been 17 years doing a phenomenal job for God in the land of Cambodia. I don't know everything God was doing. I do know. She said, Uncle Preacher, I'm going to God's country tonight. And she did. Faith. Second part is forgiveness. Our remedy must be believing God knows what he's doing, trusting him to work it together for good. And then forgiveness. Oh, yes, I know, I know, I know. Forgive and forget. No. You can't forget. If I said, forget your name. Have you forgotten your name? You have some disobedient young people around here. What could you do to forget your name? Huh? Now, you can't always remember everything you want to when you want to. But it's in there somewhere. Dr. Tom Malone used to tell about the two fellows, one guy said, how are you doing? He said, well, I'm feeling better since I've been taking this new medicine. Oh, he said, what kind of medicine are you taking? He said, um, oh, he said, what's a, what's a flower? It smells real pretty. It's got nice petals. It usually has thorns on it. It's often red. The guy said, Rose? Yeah, yeah. Hey, Rose, what's that medicine I've been taking? <laughs> Not as bad as the two old guys I heard about sitting out on the porch in the rocking chair. And one leaned over to the other and said, I always forget, was it you or your brother that was killed in the war? <laughs> so you can't forget. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness simply means to cancel the debt. If I loan your preacher, well, let's, if, if he loans me $50, and I see him, oh, my brother, brother Thompson, I'm sorry, I forgot that 50 bucks. I'll get it to you on the way to the airport Wednesday. Oh, I forgot that 50 bucks. I'll mail it to you. And I see him, oh, I forgot that 50 bucks. I'll get it to you. And he says, brother, let forget about it. Are you sure? Yeah, don't worry about it. It's fine. Just let it be a gift. Wow, thank you. And I see him six months later. He says, where's my 50 bucks? Oh, you can't do that. Once it's forgiven, you don't owe anything anymore. Man went to the marriage counselor, and the counselor said, what seems to be the problem? He said, well, every time my wife and I have a disagreement, she gets historical. <laughs> he said, you mean hysterical? He said, no, I mean historical. <laughs> I mean, she brings up everything I've ever done. Do you know how short your arguments would be if you couldn't bring up the past? I mean, it's hard to go for three days about one piece of underwear on the kitchen floor. <laughs> but we can say, you always and you never. And, uh, uh. Hmm. So forgiveness means that I do, and the Bible tells us how to forgive. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as, not even since, even as. The same way, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So how does God forgive us? Well, he forgives us immediately. Amen. Jeremiah 18, at what instant a nation I've determined judgment and would repent, I would withhold the judgment. He forgives us completely. 
And he forgives us permanently. He remembers our sins no more. Now, I'm not sure that that means they're erased from his mind because God is omniscient. He has always known everything. But I am sure it means he never holds us accountable for them again. So you've got to have faith. You've got to forgive. And then you have to fight. Oh, I like this part. I'm ready. So that doesn't make sense. Tell us to forgive. Tell us to have faith. Tell us to fight. See, the Bible says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age. The Bible says we've got to fight the good fight of faith. And the battle for the Christian life is fought in your mind. See, that verse about strongholds goes on to say, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So what I'm going to have to do is after I've forgiven a person, I'm still going to be mad at them sometimes. But I'm going to have to remind myself, oh yeah, I forgave them. <laughs> that one's canceled. I can't bring that up again. Now, a lot of ways you do this, you can say, Lord, well, thank you for the things you've forgiven me of. I dealt with a couple one time, and the, the one person had been unfaithful to the other person, and the other person was just grieved and burdened and bothered about it. But, but, but they said to me, you know, preacher, I just wanted to forget it. I wanted to tell them no more. But then they, then they said, I remembered all the things I have done, and God's forgiven me. And they said, I remembered who I am without Jesus Christ. They said, I'm a liar, I'm a cheat, I'm a druggie. So you may remind yourself of that, but the best way that you fight the battle is you get a scripture that answers your particular need. And if you need particular help, the preacher will help you about it. The book on strongholds has a lot of scriptures in it for particular situations. Because the way you resist the devil is not by saying, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to remember. I'm not going to get upset. Oh, that was really terrible. But I'm not going to get upset. I can't believe they did that. No, you don't resist the devil by fighting the devil or thinking about what he's talking about. You resist the devil with the word of God. That's what Jesus did when he was tempted. Every time that the devil gave him temptation, he answered with the word of God. And so you get the verses that answer that particular problem that you're dealing with. And maybe a thousand times a day, you quote the verse, and you quote the verse, and you quote the verse, and you quote the verse. And I'll tell you what will happen after a while. The devil will get tired of you getting spiritual by going to the word of God so often, and he'll leave you alone. Fight. I heard about a young lady who had been raped can't imagine what that would do to somebody. She went to a preacher, and a preacher gave her some strange but biblical advice. He said, well, the Bible tells you to love your enemies. Ooh, that's not what you want to hear after something like that. But it does say that. And he goes on to tell you exactly how to do that. The Lord Jesus, very, very practical sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, love your enemies and here's how you do it. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. So you say good things about them. You do good things to them and you pray for them. 
So this young lady covenanted that that's what she would do. She didn't say anything bad about the one who had attacked her. She would pray, not for God to judge them, not for God to zap them, not for them to go away for life. Just pray that God would save them, pray that God would help them, pray that God would do work in their hearts. And maybe she sent some anonymous gifts so that he could have money for personal needs while he was there. And it did not happen all at once. It was an exercise. But gradually, as she kept obeying the Bible and kept applying that principle, gradually the cloud lifted and her spirit revived. And and she went on and had a good and a normal life. Years went by. She was in a grocery store. She turned on the end of an aisle and came face to face with the man who had attacked her. Served his term, been released. And she looked up at him and she felt nothing. The word of God applied consistently over time had given her victory. Everybody's been hurt. These hurts can turn to bitterness. God tells us to respond to these hurts with grace. Dealing with these hurts is not a one-time experience but an exercise that must be repeated every time they spring up. So by the way, if you have to keep struggling, you're normal. (laughs) Victory isn't the absence of struggle. I used to play racquetball. My knees are too bad to do it now. But uh, I go play racquetball, play the same guy every Saturday morning. We played for two, two and a half hours, play from 7 to 9.15, 9.30. And if he didn't show up, which sometimes happened, he'd just sleep in and forget about it. And I did that once in a while. I couldn't win. (laughs) Couldn't lose, but could only win if he was there. Victory's not the absence of struggle. Victory's a successful struggle.